Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Always, always want to leave them wanting a little more. Yeah, yeah. Everything. The guy who stands up in front of the press conference and tries to give the press everything that they want is going to lose. Just make them leave, making them want some more. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. And Yvonne, I just started out the podcast by saying, as always, when I promised I'd never say that. You just can't help it. You're an autopilot. I know. I know. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. How How are you doing up in Atlanta today? I'm good. I am really excited for today's episode. I can't even do small talk with you right now, Steve. I'm just <laughs> know, excited to get to it. I know. Let's not hold out anymore. I want to go ahead and introduce our, our guest today who is uh, a fantastic trial lawyer. Most people know him. Anybody who's who's interested in trial lawyer, uh, trial law uh, knows Jeffrey Feiger. Um, and uh, as I was telling, uh, telling Jeffrey beforehand that uh, I remember uh, back in law school, or even before law school, following the cases that uh, he was working on. So, uh, so Jeffrey, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I want to go ahead and, t- and give everybody your background. Um, even you know, though they- by the way, I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. I'm just looking at your great trial podcast. One of the great trials was supposedly the Scopes trial. Yeah. Clarence Darrow and uh, William Jennings Bryant. Have you ever had occasion to read the transcript? I read it a while ago. And in, and in fact, it's one of the a great trial, <laughs> right, right. Not, it's, one of the, uh, it, it's so stilted and so, uh, it, it, it arcane. Uh, I yeah. know they got the idea that was a great trial. I, I think what is, it was created by, there were radio broadcasts outside the trial, but the trial itself was, was very arcane and stilted. It was. I heard. Uh, I heard. Didn't they actually do the trial outside in the square to make room for people to no, watch? They didn't. No. Okay. But they did, but they had radio broadcasts from the square, and uh, um, you know, I mean, they promoted it like a heavyweight championship fight. Although, it, again, the, the transcript itself is is very, <laughs> very stilted and ordinary. I, yeah, I had hoped for more from Clarence Darrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of reminds you. I remember seeing one time a um, uh, there was a, where a trial lawyer had gone through uh, to kill a mockingbird to look at the trial tactics and basically, uh, you know, showing how Atticus Finch was making a number of mistakes from a trial lawyer standpoint in, in the way that he tried the case, uh, even though it's obviously uh, I a fantastic book. I use some of the lines from... Uh, um, from To Kill a Mockingbird. I haven't read the second one. Uh, what is it called? Go Set the Watchman or Set right. a Watchman. Yeah, uh, exactly. That obviously wasn't really intended for publication. I never got around. I, but I steal some of the lines from Atticus Fisher. You know, I actually, Jeff Daniels is from uh, a place uh, uh, very close to uh, uh, me here near Ann Arbor. Uh, and I always wanted to to play that part. Um, I was kind of jealous they got him to play the part uh, right. on uh, on Broadway recently. Um, but I always wanted to do that. that no, part. I think I, I think it's every trial lawyer's dream. I mean, because it is somebody you you learn about and uh, and look up to, um, even though he's fictionalized. But uh, but Atticus Finch is what right. uh, I think every trial lawyer tri- strives to be. 
Well, but it turns out in the second book that he's a racist. <laughs> right, right. That's what they say. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Wouldn't it be funny if it turned out Trump was really a raving, stark raping liberal and an intellect? <laughs> Oh man! Oh, I don't even—I don't even want to go there. That's a—that's uh, uh, too much. That'll make my mind blow up. Right. Um, and that—that that was actually his hair too. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, in 2020, who knows? Lots of surprises you know, coming our way. If, if you want to read some funny stuff, Ivana, his daughter, even makes fun of his hair, and he wraps that hair around and sprays it down so tightly, you know that. You probably have to get a nuclear reactor to unwind it. <laughs> and, it, you know, and he looks like a panda bear the way they do the eyes and stuff. I just oh, want yeah. to know. I seriously want to understand the mentality of a human being who looks at him and says, yeah, <laughs> I like him. I just don't, I can't even comprehend it. You know, they say we have a, a, a major divide in this country. Well, I think the divide goes... Um, it's it, it rises to almost a evolutionary divide because I'm unable to look at that man in any way, shape, or form and see anything redeeming. And if that a certain large portion, I mean, I'm not saying it, it, he's going to lose, but a large portion yeah. of, of this country looks at him and sees him other in any other vein of light other than a stark raving protoplasmic idiot. <laughs> I don't understand. It. I don't understand it. I don't understand it because he's obviously intellectually limited. He doesn't understand any. He's obviously doesn't make a decision. Every he's made more terrible appointments who have had to leave office because of corruption. He said he was going to drain the swamp. He's created a cesspool. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what's the justification of anyone who looks at him and says? Yeah. No, you, you see, I'm, you think I'm just saying this. No, I, I, I yeah. understand that at least a certain number of people that you put on a jury think that way. No, so it, that troubles me because I want to know and I want to understand what people sitting on a jury think. And I can't understand that. And that scares me. I you know, it, it, understand it. You, you you need to come down to Georgia for a little bit because he definitely has some popularity here. Um, and I'll tell you, I've got a case that was supposed to be tried this fall. Uh, now with the with the pandemic, we don't know when, but I I it won't be went, this fall, right? Yeah, I, I went down to the uh, the you know uh, scene, and so I decided to go to a McDonald's uh, just to <clears throat> you know see the you know what everybody was like there. And, um, there were no less than five make America great again hats on in that McDonald's. Uh, yeah, but I just, so. don't, again, you understand, I don't understand the mentality. I don't, I mean, it, is it solely racism? Is it solely, you know, this nonsense about uh, appointing judges for abortion, but who could look, you hear him. He, he's he's rather goofy the way he speaks, the way he postures. He's he's very limited. He's totally uninspiring. What is it? What is it? I need to understand. I mean, no, I, I really want to understand. I'm not. I'm literally. I know it sounds funny, but I, I'm I'm semi not being facetious. What is it? Is it just that the South should have won the Civil War and good riddance? We should have cut them off a long time ago. And then we would get rid of these people, right? And they'd be in the Stone Age. We'd have Neanderthals, and then we'd have 
homo sapiens in the north. Yeah. Well, how how do you yeah, think so in bad. Michigan, how do you think in Michigan he's going to do this next oh time around? God. It's going to be an over, you know, I ran for governor here. I was the right. candidate for governor in 98. Uh, he's going to lose by Trump. Is, he won this state by 8,000 votes in accident. He's right. going to lose by about 10 to 15 points here. You. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that will definitely uh, definitely change things, and and, and Michigan is, win is Michigan. an important state. Know how he can win Pennsylvania? That's where Joe Biden's from. I don't know how he can win Wisconsin. If he can't win those states, he cannot win. He might lose Georgia. Uh, there's a, there's a chance. I mean, it's that things are definitely changing in Georgia. I mean, um, you know, it's uh, it, it it's slow, but it's coming. So, so Jeffrey, let me just uh, give everybody your background <clears throat> so that um, they can know uh, exactly who we're talking about. If you haven't heard of Jeffrey Feiger, uh, Jeffrey practices up in uh, in Michigan in, in Detroit. Uh, I think in the same law office that your that your father uh, uh, started, and um, and you're still in the same building, although I think it's expanded some, right? Yeah, it was. It started out as a small house. Now it's a quarter mile long. <laughs> it is right. it's the same location, but I most of my cases uh, um, are around the country. I, right. I practice out of here in Michigan. Michigan's a nice place. We have lakes. Yeah, uh, we have a temperate climate. Uh, it's it's not what the the cliche. Uh, uh, or what people perceive uh, Detroit to be a, a crime-ridden, destitute Youngstown, Ohio. That's it, it's actually not like that. It's very green. It's very Midwestern. Uh, we have all the water, fresh water in the world. And at some point, uh, that stuff will be a lot more valuable than any of the oil in Saudi Arabia. Right, right. So, um, and, and you, you've already said it, but I, I mean, to the case we're going to talk about is is a fantastic case but i mean just to look at the number of cases you've tried over your career and the number of verdicts including the number of um record-setting verdicts uh including a, a 145 million dollar medical malpractice verdict in in michigan uh i, I think you know you've gotten uh, what were the highest verdicts at least at the time in a number of states um including indiana in South Carolina and some others and have tried cases all over the country. Uh, I know that, you know, you a significant part of your practice, at least early on was representing Dr. Jack Kevorkian uh, for his um, assisted suicide uh, criminal cases and, and, uh, and, and uh, did a lot of good work there. Uh, as you said, you ran for governor uh, as a democratic candidate of Michigan in uh, 1998. And then I saw that even the, um, the Detroit College of Law at Michigan State University named their um, their Trial Practice Institute after you, the Jeffrey Feiger Trial Practice Institute. Um, and uh, he, uh, he used to be on the TV show Power of Attorney. You had a radio show called Feiger Time, have been on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, uh, everything you can think of, and have tried uh, numerous high-profile cases all over the um, – uh, all over the country, and uh, and we are just excited to uh, to have you uh, with us. And I, and I should say, if anybody wants to go and look up Jeffrey and, and learn about him, go to feigerlaw.com. That's F-I-E-G-E-R law.com. Well, thank you for that introduction. Yeah, now, yeah. 
Now, I don't know if it's an obituary or anything. <laughs> I just want to make sure everybody knows who we're talking to, and I'm sure everybody did, but, uh, but you know, it's... Uh, well, you know, I'm surprised. You know, you, I'm, I'm flattered that you say that, but I do go up to my trial college and uh, speak to the students, and uh, I'm very concerned uh, with uh, law students today. I think they're breeding out law, trial lawyers. And um, I don't mean to be uh, hypercritical, but you'd be amazed at how ignorant they are. Even those yeah. those in my own school named after me, I'm not entirely certain they know who or what I am or what I've done. Well, it's a, it's a big problem. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm um, on the uh, BOTA American Board of Trial Advocates who, who um, you know, we believe strongly in the right to trial by jury. And, um, you know, over the years, trial by jury has been going down uh, significantly. And it's it's hard to find lawyers, especially young lawyers who have, you know, had a significant amount of courtroom experience. That's, uh, that, that's uh, no doubt. Uh, that's the truth. Uh, yeah, I'm concerned about it. I don't know how they're selecting. I don't know how people are choosing the law, but um, I am of the opinion that uh, we are a dying breed. I hope that's not true. I mean, I, you know, I, most of the trial lawyers, uh, you know, who, who we know and respect, I mean, this is something that's in their blood. Um, it's uh, something that, you know, even if you didn't want to do it, you have to do it because, uh, you know, we enjoy um, the work, enjoy representing our clients, especially when they've got nobody else uh, that can stand up for them uh, and to get in front of a jury and represent somebody who's just had something devastating happen to them. There's no greater honor, uh, you know, in, in my life than to do something like that. And, um, and you know, when you can use that to make change, um, that's just extremely gratifying. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. And that's, that's exactly the way I feel. I'm just saying that uh, that you know we're kind of like dinosaurs and, and at least in the law students that I'm seeing come up and I don't see the uh, that type of desire and fire in a lot of young people anymore and remember there's an incredibly strong forces in our society to end trial by jury in civil cases uh, well absolutely. and I do think that that's that's true I mean that was my experience in law school that that if you that a, that a lot of times you know, the curriculum does not really involve advocacy or actually learning how to try a case that if you wanted to learn how to do that, you really had to seek it out. You really had to find those classes or find those experiences in the summer. And you've got to be motivated to do it. Um, and if you're motivated by receiving a paycheck or you went to law school because you thought that you could make money or for whatever other bad reason I can think of, and I can think of a lot of bad reasons, um, it's a difficult way to, to, to go about your life and it's uh, hardly assured success. But uh, for me, it's the only thing I can do. I can't even change a tire on a car. <laughs> the only thing I know how to do is try cases. I'm not ashamed to say that. No, yeah, absolutely. Almost uh, 70 <laughs> years old, I'm not afraid to say that at all. But I'm very proud of the fact that I can't do anything except try cases. In fact, as I get older, one of the, I think, the strengths and the power of, of, of presumably you gain, you gain some wisdom getting older is uh, the willingness. I have a willingness to admit that I don't know most things. You know, I remember when I was young, I didn't want to admit 
to anyone because I thought it was a sign of weakness. What I didn't know um, or, or that I didn't know something. Um, and I was completely wrong. I know so little. I, I think one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is uh, how little I know and, and that I'm not afraid to say that because when you confess, you know, I know relatively little, people are very open. When you, when you act like you know something and you don't know, that's, that's a very dangerous thing to do. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of things uh, youth does yeah, <laughs> and, makes yeah. mistake, and makes mistakes. Well, I, I, you know, I happen to absolutely agree with you on that. And the, um, uh, and I, I find that when you're approaching a case, you know, if you uh, approach it, uh, uh, approach it as a sponge where you want to learn everything you can about that case and commit yourself to doing that, that's when you, uh, have the best opportunity or the best ability to present that case for your clients. So, um, well, that's uh, true. also, you have to care. I was yes. talking to somebody, um, they were asking me, they were interviewing me about the Kevorkian cases. I represented Jack for about 10 years. And although I do mainly large civil cases nowadays, uh, I was, you know, I, I gained some notoriety for doing all those murder trials. And um, the secret, uh, they, I don't know if there's a specific secret, but they asked me if I if if Jack had had me try the last case when he decided to represent himself, would I have won that? I think I would have, but um, I I don't think I was going to lose those cases to a jury. And I and I always think why? What was there some kind of secret sauce? Was there something? I don't know about that, but I do know that I cared about Jack. I really cared about him and for him. I think that communicated. And if you care about your client, um, that's a very powerful, that's very powerful for a jury. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A jury that doesn't like your client, even if your client is pure as the driven snow, will throw him into the pit with the wolves. No, but that's... They like your client, no matter how bad they are. And Trump's a perfect example of that. <laughs> um, they'll, they'll support you to the day you, you die. So, um, well, and it, it yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to the, you know, if, if when you get up in front of that jury, if you don't show that you care about your client, why should they? Um, also, but you're absolutely right about knowing, knowledge, knowing everything you need, need to know. If, if you don't work harder than your opponent, if you don't understand everything, every innuendo, if you haven't done everything, if you think you can do things, trials, and I've seen so many lawyers try to do it uh, by the seat of their pants, um, that's that's a, a prescription for despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, it, you know, um, obviously, as plaintiff's lawyers, uh, we have an uphill battle uh, in in. Uh, winning our cases and um, we don't get to make mistakes about the facts or the law um, defendants well, no, in do. my opinion you, you know what but it, oh, unless oh, you're oh. honest unless you're honest and upfront honest. about it unless you're mis I make mistakes all the time right don't, but, don't worry about mistakes I, it, but not misrepresentations you can't exactly. do that defendants can do that exactly you cannot lose your credibility that's right that's exactly right. right you cannot misrepresent you cannot lose your credibility. You must confess everything to the jury, even your weak points. Oh, your, yeah. Your strongest, 
your strongest advocacy comes when you confess right out front your weak points. Absolutely. You have to hit them up front. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's the only way. Credibility is the, is the number one key at trial. I agree. Well, let's talk about this, uh, the case that we're here to talk about. This was a, uh, a very uh, high-profile case, and the name of the case is, is Amador uh, versus Warner Brothers, The Jenny Jones Show, and Telepictures. Uh, it was tried in Oakland County back in, I think it was 1998 or 1999. I think, uh, it was, I, think it, I was trying to remember. I can't remember anything anymore. But I think it was tried in 99. Okay, yeah, yeah. It wasn't 98. Okay. I think it was after I had run for governor. Oh, right. That that makes sense. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I think it was. uh, In Oakland County, so your your listeners can know, is uh, in the metropolitan Detroit area, we have a three-county area. Detroit is part of Wayne County. But the two adjacent counties are Macomb County. You often hear about the Reagan Democrats in Macomb County. And then Oakland County, which is the more, the richer of the three counties. But it's really a tri-county area. So from if you're from Detroit, you practice in all three counties. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and just a week no, so uh, this involved the uh, Jenny Jones show and, uh, and essentially Scott Amador um, was an openly gay um, uh, man and uh, he had um, been asked to come on to the show along with uh, his friend Donna Riley and then he was going to um, uh, basically exposed that he had a crush on another man on the show. Uh, that, that person's name was Jonathan Schmitz. Uh, and they had uh, been friends, uh, but Jonathan didn't know uh, that, that um, Scott had a crush on him. Jonathan uh, said that he was a heterosexual. And what I think part of this case was that Jonathan um, had a history of, uh, of mental issues, uh, I think he had uh, attempted suicide. He had some alcohol and drug abuse issues, some anger management issues, and it had really come from a uh, uh, home setting where uh, homophobia uh, was a big part of that. His father uh, said on the stand at the trial how he um, you know, uh, didn't uh, like gay people, didn't support him, and, and certainly didn't want his son uh, you know, hanging out with gay people. Yeah, and almost you know it's it's a topical thing right now in light of yeah. the Supreme Court's uh, ruling on LBGQ or whatever uh, uh, rights that just came down a couple of days ago. You know, in, in 1999, uh, that was what twenty years ago, twenty one years ago. The 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 movement had not progressed to the point we're at now. So right. that you know some of the things that were said and and that I, I I'm fairly certain wouldn't even Schmitz's dad wouldn't admit to that homophobia today. Right. Right. No. Yeah. He, absolutely. He kind of proudly admitted it back then. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the show uh, was on March 6, 1995. Uh, they brought in Jonathan, told him that somebody had a crush on him. Uh, and I think what it was is that they, it could be a man or a woman. Uh, but, it, but basically, he had been led to believe that it was going to be a woman who had a crush but on show, him. But what I created and was the idea of the, the, the story. Remember, I had to create a story. That, right. 
Um, these type of cases had never been tried before. Um, and this was, um, the story was about ambush TV. Right. That would ambush someone. Um, and that you would subject them and hold them up to, to for whatever purpose, for the entertainment of others, just like sort of they did in the Colosseum, Roman Colosseum. That was all about, you know, entertaining with blood and gore. That's just, an, you know, yeah. one of the biggest attractions in this country were public hangings in the square down in uh, Georgia. You guys understand that. Right, right. I was reading in the New York Times how many uh, lynchings there were after the Civil War. Oh, yeah. It's a, a horrific history. Well, and, and, and so these shows share that, uh, that legacy because the purpose is to humiliate, embarrass someone, put them in an uncomfortable position for somebody else's pleasure somebody else's entertainment and, and they sell that yeah and we sell it for big money telepictures and warner brothers these are what's called strip shows they're mark uh strip shows they used to film them um a lot uh i was even on a strip show i did power of attorney um but they're syndicated uh telepictures and warner brothers uh funded them and you'd for instance jenny jones would probably do two or three a day and she'd do them, you know, for a period of, of several months, you'd produce enough shows for a whole year. Um, and then you'd go around the country selling the Jenny Jones show, for instance, just like, uh, other there's shows today, uh, Sally, well, back then it was Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and it was right. you. J Jerry Springer. Yeah. Jerry, he's still on and right. you'd go around and you'd sell them in different markets you wouldn't necessarily be on one network. You could be on any station in any market. And it would, they, they were tremendously profitable, tremendously. So money was at the root of this. Yeah, yeah. When I remember, that, that was, I remember that that used to be like all that was on during the day. I mean, it's Correct. been a while since I've watched TV during the day, but these kind of shock Awkward, so awkward. I could never stand to watch them because I felt so awkward for the people on on the TV. But what I can't believe is that Jenny or that Jerry Springer is still doing it. Right, right. Yeah. I can't even believe that. But uh, um, yes, they were on all the time, and they kind of died out. I uh, and they were, and you're right. They were on everywhere. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, back to the show for a second. So, so basically, uh, uh, Jenny Jones brings Jonathan onto the show. Well, they advertised, they advertised for, uh, participants, uh, right. and, uh, uh, they had a mutual friend, Jonathan Schmitz, the killer and, uh, uh, Scott had a mutual friend, Donna, who uh, saw the show. I, I, Scott may have seen the uh, lead-in too. I don't know. Schmitz didn't. And they arranged with the producers who are all really the, 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 the moving force in these shows are the producers. Right. Young kids who, who think of these ideas. Let's embarrass a gay guy. Say, you know, he's in love with a straight guy. Let's, they come up with these goofy plots. Um, little do they think about the fact that somebody might get shot over it um, and they don't care either. And they came up with that and somehow 
they ensnared uh, Scott and uh, Donna and Jonathan, who were really pawns. They're yeah. just kids. They're kids living uh, fairly young in their early 20s. Uh, I think they, they had an apartment in, uh, in, in, in Oakland County here and in one of the, you know, lower uh, middle class white areas, uh, you know, where, where young kids lived and got their first apartments. And they ensnared them and they, uh, they got somebody killed. Yeah. For nothing. Yeah. For nothing. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, it, it, it just... For money, actually, for money, right? A lot right. of money, and the uh, and, and just so we can uh, set the the groundwork, they when they come onto the show, they announce to Jonathan that the 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 uh, crush is Scott. Uh, you, and in fact, one of the things that, that happens when he first comes onto the show is you can see sort of this awkward hug between Scott and Jonathan. Uh, and and Jonathan is wearing this big smile, and and actually, if anybody wants to watch. Uh, uh, about this trial, um, they can go on to Netflix and watch uh, Trial by Media, which uh, which Jeffrey is on, as well as uh, the the people who were involved in the criminal trial, as well as the the defense lawyer from uh, the civil trial that we're going to talk about. Um, but but it's so good, it's fantastic. It's, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Steve, yeah. but it's so good. <laughs> it is very yeah, good. I, I, my my assistant Samantha says, it, I guess you can go online. It's the number six rated. Uh, Netflix show right now. Wow. It's, it's really, it's, it's so well done. I, I wanted to like watch them all in one sitting. Yeah. My, my prediction is after this podcast, it's going to be number one. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if you've got, <laughs> you've got that market. We're, we're, we're working on it. <laughs> that type of market, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644. 
or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So basically, in, in, as part of this surprise to Jonathan, they also play a segment where, um, where Scott basically talks about a sexual fantasy of tying Jonathan up to a yeah, uh, hammock. Up, yeah, they came yeah. up with this, you know, this lascivious. They had done their homework. Right. So they, they, they had, remember, the producers interview these kids separately before they go on the show and they come up with all these things. Yeah. And then encourage them to say it. You know, I'm not entirely sure, for instance, that, that that fantasy is real or it wasn't produced by the producers itself. I'm but in sure. any event, it was lascivious yeah. talking about, you know, tying this guy up into a hammock and licking whipped cream off him. And doing that to Jonathan Schmitz is not a right. good idea. Well, and I'm sure, I, I, I am sure that the producers pushed him to make it as lewd and as, uh, as, as they could and just pushed him into putting more. Or I'm not even sure, certain. I mean, you, you're bringing back all my synapses, you know, right, right. I, I'm like a bathtub. I, honestly, I, I, uh, once I try a case, I, I, I fill up and when it's over, I literally the next day have forgotten every, I know everything. Yeah that you could possibly know about a case by including what every comma and period is in every brief. And the next day I've forgotten everything about the case. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm literally a, a bathtub. We're going to fill you back up today. And, uh, and uh, no, no. <laughs> it's causing me to, to come up with these things. And I, and one of the observations I remember is I'm certain they were making you know, that they, the producers created these things and right. then put the words into the kids' mouths. One of the things that I thought was, was, was telling was right when they announced that the crush uh, that, that Scott had on Jonathan was Jonathan's first reaction was, you lied to me. And yeah. he, and so, I mean, you, it says it right there that he had been lied to about what was going to happen on the show. Right. Um, but just so we can let everybody know what happens, basically, uh, after the show, uh, three days later on March 9, 1995, um, there was a, a, a note left on, um, uh, Jonathan's door that that was uh, you know kind of a of a love nature from uh, from Scott. So Jonathan then decides this is what I guess what he told the police. He decides that he's going to have to murder Scott. He goes out to the bank, withdraws some money, goes and buys a shotgun, goes and confronts uh, Scott at his uh, mobile home. And Scott says, I think something to the effect of, yes, I wrote the, the note. And, and so Jonathan says, I got to go turn off my car, goes and gets his shotgun, uh, um, comes in and essentially shoots um, Scott twice in the chest, uh, murdering him there uh, in his home, right in front of a, a person named Gary Brady, uh, who, who was there in the house as well. Beautiful roommate right. of, of Scott and they, they. I, I think in the TV show they play up the note, but that really the note wasn't the precipitating. Wasn't as big, yeah. What it wasn't as big. What was the precipitating thing was that uh, that that he learned Scott learned that the show was going to air on a specific date. He was okay. deathly afraid of that thing airing, and what was motivating him wasn't as much the note. Uh, that wasn't like the final straw. 
It was, right. was perseverating from the day he left that show about when that show would air because then he believed that this would portray him to all the people who knew him in Michigan as gay. And right. that right. is what drove him nuts. Yeah, and, and, I th- and I think what was also really telling is, he, so after this happens, he goes to a payphone um, and, and, um, and he calls, right, he, he calls 911 and he says right on the 911 call that he did this because of the Jenny Jones show. Yeah, he was um, Yeah, he was, he brought me onto the Jenny Jones show. I mean, there was no question what happened. I mean, yeah. and, and I, I'm jumping ahead of it. I know you're going to ask me this, but that shows the connection in what we call in the law, the proximate cause right. between the activities of the show and uh, 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 Schmitz's actions. Well, of course, when you win $25 million in Michigan, they're going to take the, the, at that point, our, our, our entire uh, appellate judiciary was uh, uh, controlled by the Republicans. And remember, I had just run for governor against the guy who had appointed most of them. And I had a ice cubes uh, chance in hell of keeping that verdict. And they said uh, ridiculously that, of course, his, his actions were intentional and criminal and unforeseeable. And therefore, there was no proximate cause, which was nonsense, utter and complete nonsense. Yeah, and I, I definitely do want to talk about the appeal. Um, that but, say, and that's, a, right. that's more of a legal point that lawyers yeah. would understand. Uh, I think the normal, ordinary, everyday people would, when they see at the end of the show that the appellate court took it away, they go, what? Yeah. yeah. What? Well, right. Especially when you see, what, which on the Netflix show you can see, when you see the clips of the actual, of what happens, it's, and, and especially if you know the background of like, it happens a lot in reality television now, how producers will manipulate what the people on the show say and the situations that they're put in. I mean, it's really, really egregious. To, even if you, it it you know, has to do with the money and these people yeah. sitting on the court of appeals, these Republican, excuse me, can I say assholes? <laughs> with this <can>. a podcast <laughs> I should tell everybody we had to tell Jeffrey what a, what a podcast was right before we started but uh, but yes you can absolutely say that incredible asshole so no <laughs> I said on the show I think nobody will ever remember them the day they die and if I piss on their grave it, the, <laughs> the only benefit they'll get is that their uh, the grass on it will be will be fertilized <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it, it and let me bring it up to present day. These are the same people who for years have been tout or granting what we in the law, when we bring 1983 uh, 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 excessive force claims, like the, like uh, uh, is all over the news now with the, the uh, Floyd uh, uh, case and, and all those cases. Yeah. Came up with this crazy doctrine called qualified immunity so they excuse every action of police no matter how egregious and uh, uh, and we know that as trial lawyers that no matter what we do um, these judges are more than likely uh, if not on the, uh, on the on the trial level but on the appellate level to find that the officers actions 
were justified in some way, shape, or form when they kneeled on his neck. If, by, if there hadn't been a video of that, the, right. they would have been a, gotten accommodation. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't hear anything about it. Murder? That's nonsense. And people have to understand the reason we can't get justice in this country isn't all. If, if we brought police to justice, we could get justice, but we can't bring them to justice because the judges, primarily the Republicans, have been enforcing this doctrine of qualified immunity. So you see it talked about on the shows uh, of getting rid of it legislatively, which they should. The re- and it's the Republicans will block because right. the Republican justices, judges, they say we interpret the law. They didn't interpret it. That's not a written law. It's a judge made law. They made it up to excuse and allow police to commit crimes. It's called qualified immunity and they won't get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely something that, uh, that needs to go. And yeah, people think, Oh, I'm a conservative judge. I interpret the law. That's, that's utter and complete nonsense. Uh, you don't interpret any law. You make it up. Um, well, th- th- so let, let's talk about the trial. Um, so so there, uh, uh, Jonathan uh, gets convicted of second degree murder uh, and they, they go through the criminal trial. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to go into it, but it was important that he be convicted, not of first, but of second. Right. Right. Exactly. You know why don't you? Well, that way, I mean, so it's not premeditated, I assume, and so that you can, That's yeah. That's right. That's right. You're smarter than you look. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I get told that all the time by my wife. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, so um, so approaching the trial, you know, there's a couple of things that that, uh, that I want to talk to you about, about, you know, how you approach this trial, because the, the, the case was against Warner Brothers, uh, obviously a big company, the Jenny Jones Show and Telepictures, and you uh, it made the decision not to include Jonathan Schmitz in that, and, and I liken this to a lot of the, we, we do a lot of negligent security cases down here, and um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we do not involve the, um, the actual uh, people who committed the crimes because we'll make the case that uh, basically they created the opportunity and the ability for them to commit a crime in a safe haven, a safe area for criminals. Well, we had, uh, we had, they hadn't instituted the type of tort reform that would have prevented us from uh, doing that. Nowadays, uh, they would have named Jonathan Schmidt as what we call a non-party at fault yes. and sent the jury to apportion the uh, uh, the uh, uh, verdict against uh, Jonathan Schmidt. But at the time, we weren't required. Uh, I think we were doing, you know, just pure comparative negligence. So, uh, um, our pure joint and several. Um, so, the uh, we didn't name him. And right. They didn't name him. I, I don't think they could have named him. They could have possibly, I guess, cross-claimed against him, but they didn't want to do that. I don't know what their strategy was on that. They they might have brought him in as a, uh, what, uh, not a cross-claim, but as a third-party defendant. I don't know why they didn't do that. Yeah, I, I saw, you know, in their... Yeah, I'm sorry. I saw in their opening uh, that they that they did make a point of him not being there and tried to point at him as a an empty chair and say that that right. you know real justice would include him. But but yeah, they didn't uh, bring him into the case. Right. 
Um, well, so, so first of all, let's just talk about, um, you know, in, in the show you talk about, um, you know, there he goes. I know. <laughs> We've frozen. Lord I know. Mercy and the frozen man, you know who's saying that? No. That was James Taylor. It's a great song. Great. Okay. You know, my brother was a rock and roll star. Oh, really? Yeah, remember the song, My Sharona the Knack? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're the Knack. Oh, cool. Wow. So, uh, uh, and so you were a frozen man for a moment. Am I, I was wondering if I was still frozen. We'll continue on. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, you're back. You were okay. asking a question. I was telling your listeners about the uh, James Taylor. Uh, right. Called The Frozen Man. They found <laughs> Nova Scotia sailor from the 1840s, perfectly preserved. You should look it up. Pretty interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah. Permafrost had melted, of course, with global warming and, and exposed his body. And I mean, it was like he fell asleep there. Oh, man. Perfectly preserved from 1840. You should look it up. But James Taylor did a song about it. And wow. It's a great, yeah. great song. Great song. There you go. So, so you're, that was a moment for education for our listeners while you were uh, frozen, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, hopefully I won't get frozen again. But, uh, but what I wanted to talk to you is, is you said something very interesting, which is that, that uh, you compared putting together your story like painting a picture. Uh, and, and I've actually thought about this a lot because I, for a time I was very interested in painting and I painted myself. And the way you paint or the way I painted was if you're looking at a landscape, you start from the back and you paint the back first and then you bring the painting forward to you. So like you paint the sky first and then you bring it to like say a little leaf or a tree or a flower, bring it to you. And so you sort of build your foundation uh, and build your story. And I, I liken that to how you build your cases, build your foundation and bring it, you know, so it makes it uh, lively for the, for the jury. You know, but, at uh, Spencer's trial school, the trial lawyers college, they teach painting. They make the, the the lawyers paint. I think it's really helpful, to be honest. I mean, it, it does really kind of make you think about how you uh, how you put together something. I agree. So, so talk about how you approach a case like this and and put together your story for the case. Well, I think about what I'm what the story is going to be. That's all I think about when I get a case. I think about how I'm going to tell the story because really I'm a story storyteller. Um, it's a it's a very ancient uh, pursuit. The idea of the of the story. We all love stories. We love hearing stories. When we're children, we love to sit by a campfire and hear somebody tell a good story. Um, and if the truth be told, that's what we do as trial lawyers. We tell stories. So I tell the story to myself and I refine it. Um, I I have described. Uh, my uh, my cases as canvases, but that was only because I heard somebody say that. But the way that I, uh, and that's not a bad analogy, um, it, just like you described it, but uh, the way I do it is I tell the story to myself over and over and over again and, and understand what the story is. And so I'm talking to myself, maybe not out loud, um, as I'm learning the facts of the case. Um, and then I have to be able to present it in a cogent fashion, not disjointed, 
but something that makes sense, that's, that holds interest. Um, I, I, I don't remember, for instance, that my opening statement was two and a half hours long, and I don't make a practice of, of doing overly long anything because I don't have a very long attention span. Um, but I'm quite certain, because I haven't gone back in 20 years and looked at what I did, but I'm pretty cer certain if I did two and a half hour opening statement, it was the most interesting two and a half hour <laughs> that anybody has ever heard because it was because I couldn't bring it down to anything less than that. And, and so I'm, I'm, cause I'm very aware as a trial attorney of, of maintaining, uh, uh, interest and, and not losing somebody in terms of uh, minutia and stuff like that and maintaining, you know, jury's uh, attention because your attention and they've, they've done a lot of studies where generally attention span is, is, is an hour or less max. And, and we know that from going to school too. That's why classes are an hour because you really can't keep students' attention for most more. And by the way, today it's gotten worse because of those things called uh, those smartphones. The kids have more attention whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but I'm, and, and even though I know that that defense attorney, I think they used him as the narrator in the show I, because he remembered things that I didn't remember. But he, I didn't remember I did a two and a half hour opening statement. But I. I guarantee you it was a very, very synthesized and concise statement, but I told the story and I guarantee you if I, if I go back and, and look at it or you go back and look at it, it was on court TV, you'll see that I had the jury's attention, rapt attention during that entire time and that I wasn't lost in any minutia whatsoever. I just don't make a general, uh, um, uh, habit of doing two and a half hour opening statements. I also used to think that I did, I wasn't as aware, but you do win your case in jury selection and opening statement. Mm -hmm. And then it's yours to lose after that. Um, but that's the where you win a case. You don't win it in closing argument. The closing argument is just to bring it all together and make sure that the jury knows that you've kept your word, right. uh, and that you're an honest broker. But, uh, you win the case in opening statement. And that's yeah. where the story gets told. And that's where they listen to it. And they're yours at the opening statement. They make their decision almost. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of studies or anything like that, but I honestly believe that people just generally make their, uh, they, they make fast, you know, they tell the juries, don't make a decision, listen to everything. You know, you're going to hear this, you're going to hear that. You know, they've already made their decision. Yeah. When they yeah. the opening statement, they made the decision. Do you recall when you were doing jury selection um, how you handled potential jurors in terms of whether they were familiar with this show or these types of shows, whether they were fans of this type of show or not? Yes, and that didn't help Jenny Jones. I don't remember specifically, but there is a general. I I, I have to say that Whereas in many, for instance, medical malpractice cases where there is a, uh, a, a prejudice inbred in the prospective juries against people bringing lawsuits against doctors and hospitals, there was not that kind of uh, uh, support 
for these ambush TV shows by the juror, by the prospective jurors. In other words, even though these shows are popular, uh, the, 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 I recall that there was not some kind of overwhelming prejudice in favor of Jenny Jones or Warner Brothers or Telepictures. So that wasn't a big problem of mine. And I knew that was a weakness of the defendant. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he recognized it because he's just a corp. Well, all these defense lawyers are just corporate lawyers who sometimes go to court, but they bill by the hour. There's no great trial lawyer that ever came out of a corporate firm, except I have to admit, Scopes did work for a, a defense firm in Chicago. He was an insurance lawyer who became a trial, a great trial lawyer. But um, I, I think they never really understood that the, the, the jury pool had been polluted already. Remember, there had been tremendous, tremendous publicity going into the trial. Uh, the fact that this was going to be tried, the fact that this involved the Jenny Jones show, the fact that I was involved, the fact that it was taking place in Detroit. There was tremendous pretrial publicity. It was being carried live, gavel to gavel on court TV. I don't think, I don't even know if they have that anymore. Um, So there was tremendous public interest and prejudice against me was not a problem as far as I, and I think it was a bigger problem for the defense. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. I mean, because basically, you know, you've got this big company coming out from L.A. or, you know, Hollywood and, and taking advantage of, uh, you know, these locals in order to uh, entertain everybody else and make a buck I might off. have had a bigger problem if this case was tried in California. Right, right. By the exactly. way, you know, they, were, they shot this in Chicago. They don't shoot these shows uh, in, in California for the reason that the audiences there are much more jaded. They're all part of it. Oh, yeah. So they go out. That's why Oprah was shot. That's why they shot. They shoot these cases in middle America because they don't really, the coasts don't work for them because the people are more jaded. I might have had a harder time winning if I was in California. One one thing talking about your opening, uh, you know, that they did show is you you do this job of, a great job of, uh, sort of painting the picture of what it's like to walk into the cemetery and, find Scott Amador's um, gravestone and it really the way you you the way you did that you just sort of put the jurors you know like where they're in first person where they're they're actually walking in and um, and, and I thought that was just a great job of, of really bringing home what this case was about and, and and who it was about yeah why he's lying in a cemetery instead of going out and doing all the things a young man would be doing, why he's lying stone cold dead in a cemetery is why I'm standing there in, in a courtroom that has, uh, that brings really people's attention to uh, that this is a very, very serious thing that happened. And that not, you know, we give lip service, people died, but we're immune to that. We've seen it so much, we've heard it so much. But when you're actually confronted with it, you know, and, and you think about it a little, I think that causes people to become more, slightly more reflective. But the purpose of that was simply to make people more reflective, to, 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 to crawl into the hide, as Jerry Spence would say, of, of, of the jurors, of, of your opponent. Because if you can't understand and think the way your opponent and where the judge and where the jury thinks, at least try, you're not gonna make it. Well, and I thought one of the the really nice contrasts 
well, not nice, it just sort of effective was that, you know, you've got the, the loss of, of this person, of this individual who's been killed as a result of what happens on this show. And then we mentioned court TV and one of like the, sh- the shocking moments, at least when I was watching Netflix, was the connection that you, I saw an interview with you where you basically talked about it, that Warner Brothers owned court TV. And so they were making money from both sides, yeah. I mean, yeah. Warner Brothers owned Court TV. They were set. Court TV was hugely popular back then, and it was a daytime show. And literally, they were carrying the trial gavel to gavel. Um, you know, most one of the problems with Court TV is there aren't a lot of really interesting trials or trial lawyers to make those shows interesting. So they kind of died out. So Warner Brothers was making money on both ends. They're making money killing Scott Amador, and they're making money, you know, broadcasting the trial for his killing. Right. While they're trying to defend themselves for what's happened, they're making money off of it. I mean, that was so just like I could not get over that. It's true. And I mean, nobody brought that up except me because, I mean, nobody paid attention to who owns court TV. But it's, right. it's it was incestuous like that, and rather ironic, wouldn't you say? Ugh. Absolutely. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning, and I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, Legal Technology Services. uh, Give them a try. So um, I want to talk about how you presented the case because it seemed to me that you uh, presented a lot of your evidence through cross-examination of the producers and then of Jenny Jones herself. Uh, And and then you you, you talk about your examination in my case in chief. Right. That's what I was that's what I was asking is is that you you were presenting in your case in chief calling their folks uh, for cross-examination and you, and you talk about on the show and I want to, I want to make sure you talk to our listeners about, you know, your concept of, you know, the story, uh, you know, 
goes throughout the case and the storytelling goes throughout your cross-examination uh, as well. And so you make sure that, that through your cross, you're still talking about the themes of your case in the, in the story of your case. That's correct, because uh, the only purpose really, and there's very few gotcha moments in cross-examination. And uh, the, the most effective cross-examination, just generally, if I had to talk to trial attorneys, is cross-examination that tells your case repetitively over and over and over again, because, because again, you're not, you're rarely going to have a moment like we had in the Jenny Jones case where I, where I knew I had her, right? Uh, which I don't want to give it away. People need to see that. Um, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Can we, can yeah. we not talk about it? Cause that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. I yeah. thought it was. Yes, you're, you're just going to give it away. Well, what do they call <laughs> this when they, they say, uh, uh, what do they say where they're going to tell that they're, they're warning people in advance that they're going to disclose something. <laughs> right, oh, right. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Well, but, uh, but, but going back, let me just finish what I was going to say. So generally in terms of, trial practice, and I guess lawyers are going to listen to your show. Um, don't worry about the gotcha moments. That'll come maybe, um, but they're few and far between. But tell your story. Um, and, and as a result, uh, you don't really need to worry about the answers. Um, because in cross-examination, you rarely, are, as long as you're listening to what they're saying, because you've got to be ready, you make it. Yeah. Um, but the answers aren't as important as the questions. Now I know, you know, we as lawyers are instructed and the jury is, it's not the questions of the lawyers, it's the answers of the witnesses. Well, again, that's not true. It's right. questions by the lawyers and it's the, uh, the ability of the, uh, or the inability of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the witness to respond. Um, and if you do that effectively so that you do not look like you're being unfair or badgering or, or bullying a witness, you have to be very, very uh, uh, intelligent about it. You don't want to start beating up Jenny Jones. I didn't, you'll notice I was very kind to her. I was, I was absolutely not uh, uh, rude to her. I wasn't belligerent to her. That's silly to do that. I would that would cause people to come to her defense. And uh, I didn't want to do that, but I was able, and, and you didn't see on the show the lead up to that. Right. Uh, there was a long, uh, she, I, I, as I recall, and, and it's unfortunate, but I knew what was going on. We, the, the way the trial broke down, sometimes you can't, uh, because of the, the way trials occur, you can't choreograph everything exactly the way you want it. And it turned out that she was going to be the next witness. And I couldn't, the judge was pushing us along. He was a very good guy, Gene Schnells, but he was pushing us along and I had to call her. But I called her late in the day on, on one day, knowing that I was going to then be able to get her the next day. So I, uh, the first part of the examination was I think they may have showed it a little and it may have looked like that she was somehow getting the best or she was pairing me, but it wasn't. It was just that I, I was feeling her out in terms of what I knew was going to happen on the next day, on the next day. Cause I knew what was going to come up 
uh, and uh, then you see what happened on the next day. Um, so it was it, it was almost a little plan, but it was planned only because I didn't want to do what I was go- knew I was going to do that late in the afternoon because jurors get tired. Yeah. And I didn't want to get her then. So I wanted to get her when the jury was fresh the next morning. So It's so good because there's a video. And so you can see the stuff that you can't read on the transcript. You can see the look on her face that morning. I actually, uh, I, I love that because that's a very real trial story, <laughs> you know, because we've all been in that instance where the judge is pushing you to get your next witness up yeah. uh, or, you know, and, and they're pushing you to keep putting up your evidence and you, and you've got a way that you want the evidence to come out in your mind yeah. and the judge might be pushing you. So I, 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 I love that because that is just very real. Uh, that, that is exactly how trials go and to, you know, uh, do a little bit of, uh, I, I thought your questioning even on the day before, uh, was bringing out some great points, even though she was, uh, you know, uh, not, not, uh, giving in and she was, uh, and, and she was pushing back, but I didn't think that that, uh, really hurt you, but you really didn't see the lead up the, you know, a lot, one of the things that makes that show really good and it's true in any, uh, great, uh, film is editing. Okay. Right. So that the editors of trial by media are excellent. That that that's going to win some awards if I do say so myself. But edited out of that story is all the stuff with regard to telepictures and the producers. And before she came on, and you don't really uh, see them. Uh, the producers I had there were two or three of them, and there was the ultimate the big producer. I think his name was Jim somebody. I forget. Um, but they were, I really did, you know, they, they, for, for dramatic license, they used the cross examination of Jenny Jones, but believe me that show that, that, that case was over before Jenny Jones got on the stand. Well, yeah. And, and as you said, in a, in a show like that, I mean, the producers are really the ones putting everything together and the, the ones who have the most interaction with, uh, with Scott Amador and Jonathan Schmitz and, and putting them in the position that they It makes it look like Jenny Jones has some authority in that show, but she doesn't. She's a talking head. She was right. actually, a lot of people don't, she was a drug. She's from Canada. She shows up somehow. She's, I think, relatively talentless. But she's not offensive. Um, she she shows up in she's a drummer in a rock and roll band, and she shows up in Las Vegas. And there's a number of years where her her activities are unaccounted for in Las Vegas. Now, what <laughs> happens in Las Vegas, I guess, stays in Las Vegas. And somehow she comes out on the other end with a show in California. I have no idea, but uh, one of the interesting sidelights that they didn't talk about is what was Jenny Jones doing in Vegas all those? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, right. The the reason I like that they sh- they that 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 part was on the show is because I think for um, it shows what you can do or what you were able to do with a witness that was very prepped. She had that. I think oh, we've yeah. all been in trials where you have a witness that usually the defendant or maybe defendant physician in a med mal case. And you can just tell they've been very prepped. They've got this look on their face. They've got this just sort of vibe and the way you were able to sort of rattle her out of that 
and being able to see that is why I so appreciated that being on the show. Remember, she was so prepared and she's good at being prepared because that's what she does. She follows direction and she learns her lines. Um, and also, I again, I'm going to come back to this. I didn't want to appear to be bullying her because she doesn't, she didn't come across as offensive. She, she did not come across as uh, somebody that you'd want to, the jury would like me to dispose of her. Um, there's always a time in cross-examination when the jury says, okay, get him. Right. It's okay to get him. But there was that, that time was not there. Okay. And, and sometimes you have to get him in a, uh, with a, uh, with a uh, velvet shiv instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we did Denny Jones. We did it with the velvet shiv. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, it's funny because we've talked on this show before about how you, uh, you, you can't get angrier than the jury lets you get. And, um, and sometimes, sometimes you can watch the jury and you can tell when they're ready for you to just go ahead and, and ratchet it up. And then sometimes you can't, you just got to be very, uh, cognizant of that uh, uh, when you're trying the case. Um, but I, I want to go ahead and get to the, 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 the point that uh, I, I know you didn't want to tell everybody on, um, uh, on here. So we'll give that warning. You know, we're about to give a little bit of a spoiler, but, but spoiler it's, alert. Uh, but it's, it, it, it's even us talking about it isn't going to do it justice from just watching it happen. But um, one of the big points on the, the show was that the, the, the defense was making and everybody was uh, you know, talking about is that Scott, uh, not sorry, Scott, Jonathan Schmitz, when, when all this is coming out on the show, has a big smile on his face. And, and, it, and he appears yes. to be, according to uh, the defense lawyer, happy and, and, and not at all bothered by what was going on because right. he was smiling. Right. I mean, and, and he looks like he's having a good time kind of thing. And, and so then you, uh, you bring Jenny onto the, when you put her on the stand and you say, you know, you've got a smile on your face. And she says something is, you know, as you've got a smile too. And you're like, does that mean you're not nervous? And she's, you know, says, well, I'm not comfortable. And then, of course, you're, you know, you follow up that, that you're not comfortable and you have a smile, just like when you, you know, uh, put Jonathan under the spotlight and expose this and he's got a smile. And she uh, has no answer for that. Right. I mean, it, it, at that point, what can she, one, it's because nobody told her what to answer to that question. Right. Because it's so obvious it didn't even need an answer. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's one of those things I, I've, I've talked to many times about how uh, my, my first and best focus group is my wife and she uh, can always tell when you're doing good or doing bad and she'll let me know it. But she was watching that part with me and she's just like, oh, you know, that, that's not good right there. You know, <laughs> that uh, uh, once that came out, she's like, that, you know, it's over. That's the ultimate gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And again, I want to stress to your listening audience that those are few and far between. Right, right. I, I, I still, you know, the, um, it, it is important and we do this a lot in our trials and I guess I want to make sure trial lawyers, you know, who are putting together cases, I mean, putting together your case through cross-examination in your case of chief, in your case in chief is incredibly effective. Um, incredibly dangerous too. Exactly. You have to be prepared. More than I do it now. I, do, I think it's incredibly dangerous and it's a little foolhardy. I had to do it in this one to tell the story uh, because the story, other than Donna, 
there was nobody around to tell the story. So I had to tell the story through the through cross-examination. Normally now, I, I and I when I was younger, I thought I was a hotshot. I thought I could get away with that, but I don't, I've changed my mind. I, I don't think that's a good tactic in general. In this case, I had to do it and I would do it again. But in, uh, I used to do it more and now I do it less because I think it's dangerous. If you can get caught, you can get yeah. caught with experts who really will get you and it's not worth it. It's really not worth it to try to tell your story or to get the defendants. I used to call, for instance, in med mal cases, I used to make, uh, I, I'll disclose some of my trade secrets. I used to call the defendant doctors a lot in my case in chief, I, I, you know, to get them. I, I, cause I was confident I knew more. And I, and I'm, and I'm not being arrogant when I say that I, I, I when I try a case, I generally know more medicine than the doctors, especially the doctors who think they know more than me. Um, but I used to call the doctors in my case in chief and try to get them. I don't do that anymore. I think it's dangerous. Um, I think it's better to let the defense call their own people and that you tell your story through your witnesses. But sometimes you have to do it. And I had to do it in this case. I had to do it. Yeah. And, and I'll say, um, I agree with you. It can be very dangerous. We still do it in some cases and you have to look at every case and, you know, decide whether or not you want to do it. What I tell everybody is you, you have to be prepared. I mean, you have to be over-prepared. You have to have a plan. You have to have your documents. If you're going to cross-examine with documents, you've got to be ultra prepared and get right to the point. Uh, so I agree with you. It can be filled with danger, but it can, it, it, but I also, I still, we still do it and we'll, and we'll do a lot of depositions uh, for use at trial um, so that we know that we've got them in the can uh, and, and, you know, and you know, at the deposition, whether or not it went well or didn't. Uh, and so we can, we can play those. Right. I don't, uh, I, well, I'm telling you something else about me. <laughs> I don't do depositions. Um, I used to. Right. But I don't do depositions. You know why I don't do depositions? You don't want them to get a taste for you? That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly it. I don't want them to know me whatsoever. I want the first time that they see me is uh, in the courtroom. Now, of course, they use that against me all the time with judges. They go, Mr. Figer doesn't know anything about this case. He hasn't appeared for one deposition like I'm supposed to do depositions. Judges nowadays are generally give me a, you know, sometimes judges go, well, well, why aren't you doing depositions? And I'll tell you, well, you know, Your Honor, the reason I don't do depositions is the reason you wouldn't understand because you're a judge and you don't do what I do. So if you just asking me those questions indicates to me that you don't really understand, you know, but you can't really say that to a judge. But I get that all the time, especially when I come in on cases from out of state. Right. Lawyers bring me in to try cases and they go, Mr. Feiger hasn't participated. Let Mr. You know, John Doe tried this case and John Doe said, well, Mr. Feiger really is a good trialer. They go, well, Mr. Feiger doesn't know anything about this case. You've been handling it up to now. Why should they be able to get Mr. Feiger here? And the judge goes, well, you haven't done anything, Mr. Feiger here. Why? They don't need you now. And, and that just indicates to me, you know, 
the, the really lack of understanding by even judges about what we do and what I do. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, I have in, incredible respect for our judges, and and I uh, the ones the ones who've had trial the ones who've had trial experience uh, definitely definitely helps when you're when you're trying a case in front of them. Right. Unfortunately, in Michigan, at least, uh, less and less, if not all, now don't have trial experience. They look at it's 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 a repository for people who don't want to practice law. I can't think honestly uh, of of one judge that I've ever seen in court prior to them becoming a judge. In the old days, I could, but nowadays, uh-uh. yeah. Well, um, so so um, I, I want to make sure. I think we you've, you've already mentioned it, and I we drug it out. But the the verdict that you get in the case was uh, was twenty five million dollars. Right. Um, well, you knew right there and then. $25 million against Warner Brothers. What was going on with the appellate courts in Michigan? We're jumping now. We mentioned this. We, we, we presaged this in the beginning. Yeah. They were going to take it away because it wasn't the righteousness of the verdict. It wasn't the righteousness of the facts. It was the money. Right. If I had so- won 10 bucks, that verdict would still stand. <laughs> right, right. Well, in the, in the, you know, and as you've mentioned, the case does go up on appeal and, and unfortunately gets uh, gets uh, reversed. Um, the- and then, by the way, because it was all Republican, two to one, and then we appealed to the Supreme Court, which denied leave to appeal, of course. And so then I'm stuck because there's no federal, uh, right. there's no federal redress. So we're SOL out of that. And... Uh, that was Michigan appellate courts for the last 20 years. They're slowly changing, but uh, uh, the appellate courts were made up of political appointees who never practiced law. I, I did want, you know, this, this whole concept of, I mean, the, basically the reason why it was appealed is because they found that there was no legally uh, cognizable duty to protect um, Scott Amador from the criminal act of a third party. They thought it was an unforeseeable intervening cause. None. Well, you know, the interesting thing, and, and I, I actually thought the dissent uh, in that was, was uh, you know, made some great points. But I was sitting there thinking, I mean, you know, it, if you set in motion what's going to happen, which is what they did here. Like the um, that Paul's graph? Right, we right. That, we learned that in law school. No matter how difficult the steps are leading to the ultimate uh, blowing up of the train station, if you've set the fuse, right, uh, you are a proximate cause, not the a proximate cause. They, they, but understand, they didn't make a decision based on law. I keep no, I get it. I get it. That over and over and over again, it had to do with the money. This is political. People think judges and the appellate courts decide things according to the law. They don't. They decide things according to politics. Just like when you want to protect the police, you make up a law called qualified immunity and you absolve the police of every time they kill a black man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it just, it, it just really, uh, and if it really, you know, it infuriates me. I'm not the type of guy. I don't tolerate fools kindly. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, but I, I understand I don't want to take the law into my own hands and I don't want to commit murder myself. 
You see, right. these people enrage me. The only thing, the only poetic justice I have is like what I told you, that after they're dead, nobody will know they ever lived. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's the only thing I know. I think um, one of them got actually appointed to the federal court bench. He still sits up there. Okay, okay. His father was a United States senator from Michigan uh, who was a Republican, and he got himself appointed because he's the son of a Republican. He's also <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, you know, and so uh, unfortunately, the, you know, this case ended in a, a, a way that it shouldn't have, but I mean, it, it was still an incredibly important case. Actually, though, it probably ended when you think about it in the way that it was supposed to end because now all these years later, and you watched the show, and you ultimately the injustice. You st- it didn't change one iota your feelings about what happened, did it? Right, right, absolutely. And and, and so I think perhaps um, that type of thing, maybe it was supposed to happen that way. You know, I I realize I didn't get money for the family, but and, and it wouldn't have changed anything anyways. I wouldn't have brought Scott back. Right. Uh, it wouldn't have changed the grief of, of anyone. Maybe there would be a modicum of justice, but maybe just maybe by doing what they did, which was yet another injustice, the show points out, uh, you know, the, the injustices that this family has had to endure, um, not only from the show, but then from the judicial system, because that's a fact of life in America. Right. You know, um, it, it, I I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I, I part of me wonders did did this case help sort of bring an end to these types of shows? I know yeah, some of them still. It, it basically brought an end to the shows. Yeah. Uh, other than Jerry Springer, which I can't believe still is on the air. What they did almost immediately after the show, and they've they've ended this because I somebody brought to me a case the other day against the Jerry Springer show. And they, they, what they had done immediately after the show was, or after this case was to institute some remedial measures, which were included counseling for anybody they brought on the show prior to them appearing on the show. I'm not kidding you. And then not just signing releases, but provided actual counseling and not making these, uh, these, uh, tortuous uh, shows involving surprises that could end up in uh, uh, somebody's harm. So they tried that for a while and then the shows just died out. The only one that still exists is Jerry Springer. Um, And I don't know how or why it does. Somebody just brought a case to me about Jerry. Somebody committed suicide as a result Mm. of Jenny or the Jerry Springer case show. And I don't know how that, that show continues to exist. And they stopped in, in Jerry Springer, they stopped several years ago doing these counseling things, having a, a certified counselor on board uh, for these type of ambush, because that's all Jerry Springer does. He ambushes, you know, you're not the father of my baby and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That would produce some real dramatic results sometimes. Yeah. Well, um, how... Uh, Jeffrey, I wanted to ask you, is, is there anything that we haven't talked about about the Amador case that you want to make sure that our listeners uh, uh, know about it? 
Probably, but I can't think. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> probably I, a whole hell of a lot, but we talked about enough now. Remember, we lost everything. We always, always, always want to leave them wanting a little more. Yeah, yeah. Everything. The guy who stands up in front of the press conference and tries to give the press everything that they want is going to lose. Just make them leave making them want some more. That is a very fine line to walk and figure out where, where, where to, to cut it off. How do you do that? Well, the way you do it is you say, uh, until next time. <laughs> right. Well, I want to close uh, with, with one thing that I heard that you said to one of the law school classes that we talked uh, um, ahead of, uh, a little bit earlier in the show, but you made the point of making sure that when you're a trial lawyer, uh, to be authentic and be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to be Jeffrey Figer. Don't try to be Jerry Spence. And you'd be better off seeing a psychiatrist and learning who you are. Yeah. Well, and that is always at work. It's you. It's understanding how you feel, understanding what makes motivates you, understanding what's in your gut. Can you imagine trying to communicate to other people a story and, and, and people's feelings. If you don't understand your own feelings, mm -hmm. and believe me, most people don't. Introspection is a very rare quality. It's very, a very tough thing to do too, yeah. Also, um, the thing that Trump lacks most, which is empathy, um, is a very rare thing also. So introspection and empathy, is uh, a quality which is essential for trial lawyers. Well, and, and uh, we, we can leave with this, but one of the things I saw that you said, uh, which I totally agree with, is that the, the uh, guy across from you in the courtroom who is really slick in the courtroom, really smooth in front of the jury, that's not the guy that scares you. The guy that scares you is the guy who is fumbling with himself and maybe makes mistakes, but you know they're authentic. You know he's a real person. They're authentically fumbling and security right. will come to their aid. Those people scare me. The slick, tasseled, Wall Street, silk stocking guy, they don't scare me the least, you know. <laughs> the guy who really doesn't know what they're doing and is fumbling, is making mistakes, and is halting because that's the point at which the jury comes to their aid and they feel bad for them. But they see somebody really struggling but trying. Yeah. That to me is very dangerous I agree as an opponent absolutely absolutely well uh, 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 Jeffrey uh, this has been just a great uh, great interview and, and, and thank you so much for your time is this um, a list for your great trials podcast oh yeah yeah <laughs> this, this will be great I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Jeffrey Figer and if you want to look up uh, uh, Jeffrey go to Figer law.com that's f-i-e-g-e-r law.com my name and it will come up <laughs> right exactly ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict thank you for listening to the great trials podcast you can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com 
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show... Or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.